Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Living with Power Hope podcast. My name is Lena Ebajemra, and I'm your host. It is uh, great to have you back with us if you've been here before, and if you're new, welcome. We're glad that you checked in with us. This is a place where we share biblical truth for everyday life. Our hope is that you grow in the knowledge of God and that you continue to stand strong in a world that is shaken. And so this summer, we are running a teaching series that I've put together called the Unshaken Series. It is an awesome teaching series and uh, one of the most popular teachings that I've done. It uh, focuses each week on a different Bible character, a man or woman that has stood strong in faith no matter the difficult circumstances they were in. I know that you're going to find hope and healing with each of the weeks that will cover a different episode. And so uh, if you want to know more about our ministry, check out livingwithpower.org. And by the way, when you land on our page, check out our speaking page. And if you are looking for a person to come and teach uh, or lead a conference at your church or uh, group gathering, then please reach out. We'd love to meet you in person. In the meantime, sit back, relax, and listen to today's teaching in the Unshaken series. Amen. Awesome. Going to be a, a great lesson today in Judges chapter 6. We're in lesson 10 of our series called Unshaken, and today's title is when I'm uh, overwhelmed with insecurity. When I'm overwhelmed with insecurity. Now, uh, it's funny about insecurity. Some of you um, sort of, we make judgments on one another. We think somebody's really confident or somebody seems really insecure if they're not very talkative or seem like they're in the back of the room. And, and really, a lot of the assumptions we make about people are wrong. Every one of us struggles with insecurities in some areas. And and uh, to give you a pick on myself, I can look like a very confident person and I'm certainly confident in a lot of aspect, uh, aspects of my life. But there's some deep insecurities in my life that um, have a way of becoming uh, sort of a, um, a paralyzing, we're going to see that in a minute, the paralyzing part of my life if I'm not careful. And so the young man we're going to look at today, Gideon, uh, was a man who uh, was plagued with some insecurities. Uh, when, when it comes down to it, what is insecurity? You know, our whole se- the series is called Unshaken. And it's interesting because when you look at the meaning of the word insecurity, it is to be subject to fear and doubt to be uh, not uh, reassured and to be shaken. So, so what we want is to be unshaken. So the very essence of what we're studying tonight is, is the opposite. We don't want to be insecure. We want to be unshaken. And so uh, I believe this, this teaching is going to be a blessing. If you know the story of Gideon, then you're already excited about what's coming. But before we jump into Judges 6, I think getting a little bit of context is so helpful in Scripture. So if you've been checking into the lessons, you know that we've left last couple of weeks, we've studied some amazing stories of victory. And so here's, we talked about the people of Israel who've had ups and downs, and and so much of our life is like that. And so we talked about how they, um, actually three weeks ago in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, how they went through uh, the Kadesh Barnea sinful season and suffered for it, but then come back to to Joshua picking up the the charge and, and God just faithfully bringing them into Jericho. And so we see the story of Rahab, and then we saw the Jericho story, and and now the people of Israel are going into the promised land and there's a lot of work to be done. This is not a one-time process. A lot of us think that going into the promised land is a one-time process. Boom, we're in, we're done. But it took a battle. They went in and they had to continue to fight for the ground that God had already promised them. 
So much like the Christian life, we've already been given everything, and yet every day is a battle for that which is true, for that which is right, for that which is victorious. We have the strength in us in Christ to fight those battles, but we sort of forget, we assume that it's going to just be there. But in fact, God has given us a promise and he wants us to lay hold of that promise. And again, the people of Israel started off well here in the story of Jericho and Joshua. So Joshua is leading the people of Israel and they're having a good season. And then before we get to Judges 6, how did the judges start ruling? How did we move from Moses, Joshua to now we're going into a season of Judges? Well, uh, the answer is uh, uh, glean as you read the first few chapters of Judges, we're not going to read them all. I'm going to give you a couple of highlights, some verses that are critical and that are relevant to the era that we're living in right now, I believe. And so in Judges chapter 2, first there's a few verses where Israel disobeys God and God rebukes them. And it had to do with God had wanted them to destroy the enemy completely so that the enemy wouldn't come back and 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 ruined them with their um, uh, way of thinking that was against God's way of thinking. And so then we move into them asking God's repentance and then Joshua um, dies. Every leader will eventually die. Every human will eventually die. But so Joshua dies and the question is what happens after great or poor leaders die? Well, we are left with another generation. And so you wonder, here's a great leader. First of all, Moses was an immensely great leader, followed by Joshua, who's an equally awesome leader, a man of God who worshiped God and taught in the truth. And you say, what about the next generation? Remember that that next generation had experienced the circumcision. They had been, before going into the promised land, they had been circumcised. So they knew who God was. They knew about God. They had this sign in their own bodies to remind them of this God. And then Judges chapter 2, it says, verses nine, 8 and 9, Joshua died at the age of 110, and they buried him. And then verse 10, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And now, so one generation dies, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. A, a verse like that ought to stop us in our tracks. Here we are, we've got momentum, we've seen some incredible work of God, and all of a sudden an entire generation comes up that has no concept. What in the world is happening? Did they not have a concept really? Did they not know what their parents and grandparents believed? Oh no, I think they knew. In fact, we're going to see in a minute that they didn't know because everybody in that people of Israel knew the history of the call of Abraham and, and, of, and of Isaac and of Jacob and the 12 sons of Jacob. This was common cultural knowledge. It was like family trees. And they knew those stories of victories. They had the stones at the Jordan. They had the Jericho wall story. They had Rahab. They, they, people who didn't know the Lord knew those stories. And so the people of Israel knew. You say, well, what happened? Well, verse 11 of chapter 2, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now you go down a little to verse 16 of Judges 2. We're coming into to, to our guy Gideon in a second, but follow with me. It says, then the Lord raised up judges. So, so things are going bad. The people of Israel are serving other gods. And so what does God do? He, he wants to help them out. It says, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So the entire book of Judges, we start seeing this pattern where the people of Israel decide we're not going to serve God. We're going to serve the gods of the world. We want the way of the world. And, and God would let them do that for a while. And, and they wouldn't turn. And so the pressure, the, the enemy would plunder the people of Israel. And then they would turn to God. And so God raised up judges um, in order to, to, to lead them. And verse 17 of chapter 2, this is key. It says, yet 
They did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other small g gods and bowed down to them. This next generation made a decision. Day after day, year after year, an entire generation decided that what their fathers, what the truth was, what they knew to be good and true, and the worship of the one living God was not good enough for them. And so they willfully and repetitively made a decision, and this became the pattern for the people of Israel. In fact, the entire Old Testament is a pattern of the people of Israel constantly choosing to worship the gods of this world instead of the one living God, and it did not serve them well. So much so that there's a couple of judges that make their way through chapters two, three, four, and then you finally get to Deborah. There's some good judges, and, and then there's seasons where things are good, and then and then the, then the people of Israel turn away from God, and this pattern begins where they turn away from God, and they start failing again, falling into misery, and in the bottom of their misery, they turn to God again. And so we end chapter five of Judges with a victory, a song of victory. Deborah is a woman prophetess in the Old Testament who leads them in victory. And the last sentence of Judges chapter five, leading into now the story of Gideon, all right? This is the last sentence. A small sentence is that it says, the land had rest for 40 years. So, so they had struggled. God raised judges. They would do well for a while. Then they would do badly for a while. And, and Deborah comes around and, and they do well for a while. And for 40 years, they had rest. You know, we all strive and long and dream about rest. But you know, sometimes too much rest, lack of suffering, lack of pressure in this world, as we know it, is not always a good thing. You know what happens when we go through seasons where we just have everything we want? Well, we become complacent and we become centered around me, myself, and I, and we become hungry for the things of the world. This pattern is not new. We see it throughout scripture. We see it in the world. We think if I could just have everything and build a little heaven here on earth and everything will be all right. Well, then the opposite is true. We've seen it here in the United States of America, the place where people come to fulfill their dreams and still one of the best places to live in the planet. I'm speaking as an immigrant who I watched my parents make the move as a 15-year-old child, teenager from Beirut, Lebanon to Green Bay, Wisconsin. And this was the place of dreams. And if you're going through a cynical time in the history of the United States right now and looking around going, man, this ain't nobody's dream. You're wrong. To this day, when you go overseas, everybody thinks still that this is a place of dreams. But what has happened over the last 50, 100 years, I don't know, maybe all throughout the history of the U.S. is that things have been so easy for Christians in particular. And because of it, there's a complacency and there's a sense that everything is owed us and and a generation is now arising. And if you follow any form of social media, and if you follow any of the theology and the pattern of thinking of the generation that's coming up, it is so far from this book. I'm not talking about a political side. I'm not talking about the denomination. I'm just talking about the truth of this book. In fact, most, most of the next generation doesn't even know this book. And so you say, how, what happens when we hit that place? Well, we're gonna see God's mercy in this place. We get to Judges chapter six, the people of Israel, this is, so they had rest for 40 years. In that season of rest, coming into chapter six, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord, here's mercy. This might not look like mercy, but it's gonna be a step of mercy. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. The Midianites were not the good guys in the story, they were the enemy of Israel. You say, how, what did they do with them? Well, verse two of chapter six of Judges, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. 
And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey for they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number, both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. So basically, anytime the people of Israel would try to make something of their life, in the land and the produce, the enemy would come in and plunder them and overpower them so that that period of rest was coming to an end. And it might look initially, you might, if you were a people of Israel, you might be like, why is God doing this? In fact, Gideon thought that, and we'll get to that in a minute. And yet the very thing that they complained about was the very thing that would lead them to turn back to the living God. Watch, he says, uh, and Israel, listen, verse six, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And here it is. So what did they do? 40 years of rest, seven years now of Midianites, oppression, suffering. Here it is, it took this long. They, they waited seven years of this. And now, second half of verse six, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. There it is. It is God's mercy that leads us to repentance, to cry out to him, to recognize that we need him. The very pressures in our life that we hate are the very things that turn us back to him. And so verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, by the way, God knew. This wasn't like a surprise to God. Oh my gosh, they're suffering. God had set it up so that they would come to this place. Because why? Because he was a faithful, the faithful God who had chosen this people. He was committed to them by covenant to Abraham. God would not turn back on his word and so what did, happened in verse 8, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. By the way, we don't know the name of the prophet. This is not, this is an unnamed prophet. Do you ever feel anonymous? Do you ever feel like, like you're living your life and no one knows who you are and you don't know how you could serve God? Well, here's a prophet who calls a nation back to repentance that even in the God's word, we don't even know who he is. But we know he knew the truth. It says, and he said to them, this unnamed prophet, that might be you living in your small town somewhere thinking, man, no one is listening. Listen, God might raise you up to call an entire people back to the Lord. And so this unnamed prophet says to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I, so what, what this prophet does is now he takes their attention back to who God is and what God had done. He says, thus says the Lord, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave their land. The very goodness of God had delivered them from Egypt and their slavery. And so now they're being reminded, this is who God is. And I said to you, this is the prophet, the unnamed prophet is continuing. He said, and I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the little gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But, but here it is, but you have not obeyed my voice. Most of our misery, especially as Christians, is because we don't listen to God's ways. We know what God wants, but, but we forget or we disobey. We saw it in Judges 2, we see it here in Judges 6. A theme is coming up, which is the minute people think that we don't need God and are able to figure it out on our own is the moment we turn our back from him and it only often takes pressure and suffering in our life to turn our attention back to the living God and so what causes us to turn back is not our own desperation but it is God's mercy that brings us to a point of desperation where we can finally realize that all the rest in the world is not good enough for us without the living God 
Say, what was happening on the ground? Well, here we get into the story of Gideon. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abirzarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Okay, this is classic. If you're a Christian for any length of time who have lived in the ways of the Lord, you've probably hit disappointment. And if you've hit disappointment and fallen into a trap of insecurity, then you understand the words of Gideon. The question that most of us get stuck asking God is, is the question that Gideon asked, why God? Why is this happening to me? And so, and, but, but, but the irony, is, so, so, so what, what was Gideon doing? Just to backstep it a little bit. So Gideon is hiding so, so this action of beating out the wine press, this you, is something that requires space and openness. Instead, Gideon hides because he knows that if they see him, the Midianites, they're going to take his livelihood so that he can't provide for his family. So he's literally a cowardly hiding, doing the best he can to survive in an era where, and he's thinking as he's pressing the wine, you know, he's kind of, all that's going on in his mind is, where's God? What about his, his word and his promises and his ways? And I'm not seeing it. And, and who is this God? And why is it? So he's going through this, 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 this reel of, of conversation in his head because the minute the Lord sends his angel, this is, by the way, a theophany thought to be a, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament and not in the flesh, but an appearance of him. And, and because we'll see in a minute that he, uh, this, he, he refers to him as the Lord. And so, but, but, but without speeding ahead, Gideon is so full of these questions that the minute the Lord says to him, First of all, it's, a, it's an incredible greeting. The Lord is with you, almighty man of valor. <laughs> Have you ever been in the throes of defeat and insecurity? And someone comes and says, man, you're awesome. You're great. I mean, think about a high schooler who, who gets a D or a C on a test. And you come home and what are they expecting you to go, man? It stinks for you. And, and imagine the parent goes, man, you're a genius. I, it, is, it almost has that feel. But why? Well, we're going to see because, because God sees beyond what we see. God has the end of the story and God has already anointed Gideon to a job. And so he sees his full potential, whereas Gideon is still so bound by his insecurities. I'll give you some teaching points as a wrap up in a minute. I, I think this is so critical to get into the text and to understand what's happening here. And so, so God says to him, the, the Lord is with you, almighty man of valor. So Gideon has this little questionable, what's going on here? And verse 14, and the Lord turned to him and said, so, so now Gideon has laid his heart to God. He's open, he's honest. You know, he, I don't know if he knows that it's the Lord yet, but he's just being honest. He's like, I just don't see it. And instead of yelling at him or punishing him, again, we've seen this pattern in scripture. God is not afraid of our questions. God's heart is a welcoming heart waiting for us to, to intimately engage with him over the affairs of our heart. And so verse 14, it says that uh, the Lord turned to him and said, go he didn't even stop to answer. He just says, okay, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And 15, he said to him, so Gideon says, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Well, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Reminds me of Exodus chapter 
uh, two, where Moses, uh, two or three, somewhere in early Exodus, where Moses is, is petrified of being called by God to go do a job because he just can't see it. He's, he's shaking in his boots. And here's, here's, here's um, Gideon, who rightfully knows that A, they're not as strong as a Midianite. B, he's from the weakest clan and family. C, he himself is so insecure. He knows that about himself. He's honest about it. And instead of stooping to answering those questions, God reminds Gideon of that, which is going to get him through this. And it had less to do with Gideon, it had nothing to do with Gideon, and it had everything to do with the power of God. It's a couple of teaching points before we move on. Number one, we're talking about unshaken when I'm overwhelmed with insecurity. Number one, nothing will paralyze you into inaction faster than the feeling that you're not enough. All right? Nothing will paralyze you and me into inaction, doing nothing, than the feeling that we're not enough. This is the story for so many of us. We're stuck, we're confused, and we're paralyzed because we look at our life. You say, what do we look at? Well, a couple of things we look at. The truth is that if we focus on our past, we will feel like we're not enough. Most of us know what we've done in the past. We know who we are. We know our, our record. We know our, 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 our grades, if you want to put it that way. And if you focus on that, you'll never get anything done. That's like the Apostle Paul. We've talked about that before. Who, If he had fo focused on the past, he wouldn't have been able to live his life. So, so what paralyzes us is that we're so focused on this notion that I'm not enough, I'm insecure, and, 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 and part of that is a focus on the past, but another part of it, the truth is that if you focus on your experience, you will feel like you're not enough. See, many of our experiences are, for a number of reasons, painted by a lot of different things. Sometimes there's some circumstances that are out of our control, and, and we may have responded to the difficulty of the circumstances. You can't look at experience, you gotta look at truth. That, that's a problem, is that too many modern-day Christians are basing their theology on personal experience. Well, so-and-so had this happen to them. Well, well, while experience might encourage you to move forward in certain things, well, I know what God did in the past, but, but ultimately, even that experience of, well, I know what God did in the past, therefore I can have confidence for the future, is based on the truth of who God is and his character. So it's not the experience, but the character of God that put, shed a light on that experience that moves us forward. You see, it's not our experience that will give us confidence, but, but the truth of who God is and his promises in our life. You see, too many of us focus on our experience and wonder why is this not holding up? Well, experiences come and experiences go. I can't even barely remember the day I graduated from medical school. I don't remember what I felt that day, but I know the verses that carried me through medical school when I was afraid, when I was struggling with insecurity, will I ever get through these rotations? And on and on and on. So nothing will paralyze you into inaction faster than the feeling that you're not enough. And nothing will exacerbate that feeling, that feeling of I'm not enough, than focusing on your past and on your experiences. And by the way, you can focus on your past like the people of Israel who got the stones at the Jordan, that's a different focus on past. When I'm talking about focusing on past where it brings you down, it's when you're looking at your past as a, man, man, I just, I'm a failure. Man, it's, my life is full of disappointment. Man, I'm such a loser. That focus on past, not, okay, here's, here, here's what I prayed and here's what God promised. That's a different focus on the past. So the truth is that you focus, if you focus on your enemy, you will feel like you're not enough. Gideon did that mistake. He, his eyes were on the Midianites. Now, how are we ever going to beat them? Well, he had no idea what was to come. Remember, Gideon is the guy who had the 30,000 people and, and to go to war. And God said, we don't have more than 30,000. And God said, you don't need the thousands upon thousands. God said, you just need 300. And so little did Gideon know what was coming when it came to his enemy. But, but God never tells us ahead of time what's going to come because we wouldn't do it. 
If you knew, if Gideon was told on that day, hey, Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor, and by the way, you're going to go against Midianites with 300 people. Do you know what Gideon would have done? He started running. I would have hid. I would have been like, there's no cave deep enough to hide me from that task. But see, the Lord knows exactly what we need and exactly how much we need to know, and so that he tells us every day exactly what we need to get to the next day. That's frustrating if you're like me, because I want the plan. I have a niece who wants every details of every plan, and we're giving her a hard time. Like, I'm giving her literally a two-minute schedule for every day. It's her personality. It's, it's cute. It's, it's endearing. But we expect that from God sometimes, and faith follows him and is less concerned about the details of the plan and more concerned about the character of our, of our Lord. And so nothing will paralyze you into inaction faster than the feeling that you're not enough. And building on that, number two, nothing will propel you into action faster than a firm belief that your God is more than enough. That's the truth that propels us forward. It's not that I got to get stronger, smarter, richer, better. The truth that propels us forward, you can get smarter, richer, more beautiful, do all the things you want to do. Great. That might open a few human doors for you. But if you're looking to do the impossible, if you're looking to, to, to lead a generation into the next step of truth, man, you've got to de depend on more than just what I can do. And the thing that will propel us into the future, the thing that will propel us into our destiny, the thing that will propel us into what God has for us is recognizing and relying on the fact that God is more than enough for my not enough. God is more than enough for your not enough. God sees more than what you see right now. You might be blinded by the limited perspective that you have. God sees more. God can handle your questions about his work in your life. Ask him the questions, but trust that he sees more. I remember once using an illustration on this point. I had gone to the Grand Canyon and I drove three hours to go see the Grand Canyon from Scottsdale. I went and did a personal retreat there. And I, I remember being so, I had heard all my life about the Grand Canyon, but I'm Lebanese. I didn't really have any context, didn't grow up going to national parks. And, and I, I remember uh, driving to the Grand Canyon. I went through, through Flagstaff, which I thought was cool, but I, I really liked the desert. So I was really like excited when I got to Sedona and when I got eventually into the Grand Canyon area. And I remember spending the night somewhere. I don't remember what hotel I was in, but the next morning I drove and I thought, okay, I'm going to go see the Grand Canyon. And I remember driving sort of, um, I guess I was in the South Rim and I was driving along the road and I sort of saw the edge of it. And you know, if you don't know where you're going or what you're doing, you kind of see sort of these layers and you kind of go, oh. And I remember kind of going like, Oh, this is the Grand Canyon? This is what people in the United States talk about? Like, it's just, I mean, I was just sort of like, I don't see it. Okay? So that day I had decided to take a helicopter uh, tour of the Grand Canyon because I had literally one day to see your Grand. I was not going on a camping, hiking, nothing. I was just like, one day I was going to make the most of it. So I remember driving sort of along the rim and sort of being a little disappointed. And, and then I went to the helicopter place and I got out of the helicopter place and I uh, I paid the bill and waited and, and then got me on the helicopter to do a little orientation. And, and then I remember the guy, I was in, somehow I ended up in the front seat and he'd given us headphones and any jabbers and talks. And I was like, yeah, you know, impress me. And in my head, I'm thinking that and, and giving us all these stats. And I remember he took off and flew over the, um, the Grand Canyon. And, you know, there's a point you don't, you know, you're kind of over the land and you're kind of going, okay, this is kind of deserty, whatever. And then there's a point if you've ever done a tour, maybe, maybe you've gone in, you, you might have the same effect, but there's something that literally 
shakes you in your core the minute when the helicopter goes in that right place where you can see it all. I remember being stunned into silence. I, I really, I had, I had a visceral reaction, a good visceral reaction. I, had, I remember just kind of like being blown away. Like I had this, I'm telling you, the tears started coming down my face. I, I'm a little embarrassed to tell you now, like I cried over the Grand Canyon, but it was that magnificent to me. Why was it such a oh, inspiring moment? Well, because I had gone from sort of this, is this all God can do? This is it? And then in a moment, I saw it all. And in that moment, I understood, man, I had no clue what I was talking about before. That's a taste of what I mean when I talk about how God sees more than we can see right now. There will come a day when you and I will stand back and see it all. I had a really cool conversation today with a girl who I was taking care of, a patient. And uh, I tell you, it's so much of our life we go through, we just don't see like God sees. And we go through and we complain and we are insecure. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm like the poster child for insecurity in the things that matter to me. I mean, and, and things that are, you know, there's some things in my life I just didn't, I mean, I like them. I, I love this, that, and, that, and I'm good at them and it's fine. But the things that I'm really passionate about, I can be so insecure about because I know all the failures and I know all of the insecurities. And, and, so, and so along the way, some of those have related to my calling and my ministry. And, and, and today I, I called, I picked up a patient and I did a video call and the girl was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's you. She recognized me from a conference that I had done in Oklahoma. And I'm telling you, I remember the conference. I never met this girl before. And she, we finished the patient care. I thought that was cool that she knew me. We talked a bit about that. And we finished the conversation about her issues. And, and right when we were going to hang up, she says to me, we, I sort of small talked a little, you know, and, and she said to me, can I tell you something? I said, yeah. She goes, what was really cool, she told me I'd gone to that conference with my sister. And my mom and my other sister were planning to come. And they couldn't at the last minute. So it was me and my sister. And she says, you know, all I remember is you kept talking about these pies. If you have been to the Oklahoma convention that I've spoken at, they have fried pies. And it's sort of our love language. We talk about the fried pies. Well, um, she says to me, you kept talking about it. We never had these fried pies. So my sister and I decided on our way back to do a little bonding thing. We'd go and taste the fried pie. She goes, when we went in line, we waited and we went to, to get in line. And, and after waiting a while, she goes, we couldn't decide which one to get. And this girl who I was talking to said, I just had this moment. I don't know what possessed me, but I just thought it would be, I said, what the heck? She goes, my sister didn't have a lot of money. And so she really was on a budget and she would have had to pick one. So I just decided to do something cool. I just Decided, I'm gonna get her one of every pie and we would taste them and so indeed she ordered one of every flavor of pie there's like 10 flavors she goes she ordered literally one of every flavor because I talked about the stupid pies she ordered one of every pie they go into their car they sit in the car and they literally spent about an hour and a half or so reveling in what God had done talk eating a mite of the pie on and on and on and then she says that's uh, she goes her sister was 33 it wasn't long after that when her sister was breastfeeding her child at home and died of a sudden death. She goes, that was my last living memory of my sister. And she goes, and she really was tearing up. I'm tearing up now. And she says, she says, um, I just thought you should know. You talked about these pies and you might not have even thought it mattered, but it was life changing for me. What God did in their life was life changing. But this moment, this memory, I had no idea. I could have looked back on this event and thought, man, and listed all of the things. God, really, why am I not doing this? And why is, was there any effect? I don't know, you know. And here, this woman, this was two, three years ago, will change her life over a story that we gave. 
I would never have known if I didn't call her today. Why is this relevant to you? You might be like, well, I don't speak, I don't teach. It doesn't matter. You wake up, you go to work, you interact with people at the grocery store, at the cheese shop, at the gas station. You live a human life in this world that has forgotten who God is. You are the breath of God to them if you know God through his son, Jesus. We are the sweet, we're supposed to be the sweet smelling savor of Christ, but we're so stuck in our insecurities that we think, man, nothing that I'll ever say into this situation will make a difference. What if an illustration about a pie, a small talk ends up changing somebody's life? You say, man, but that's not about the gospel. It's all gospel. Our whole life is gospel. How we treat one another how we live and interact and speak and our countenance and the time had I not slowed down today. Usually I'm a bit of a pace seeing patience and by God's grace, I slowed down enough to give her space to tell the story. I ended up talking three, four times as long as I usually do with other patients. And it was okay because I got to be part of her experience and she encouraged me and we built each other up. That's the Christian faith. You see it unshaken when I'm overwhelmed with insecurity, nothing will paralyze you into inaction faster than the feeling that you're not enough. Nothing will propel you into action faster than a firm belief that your God is more than enough. And then number three, and we'll finish soon, nothing will perplex the people around you faster than a life lived by faith for the glory of God. Let me, uh, let me show you where that is. I'm gonna read you a little bit of text. I've got a few more minutes here and then we'll end in prayer. We're almost done. And so verse 16, God says to Gideon, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now, and you're gonna see a pattern of Gideon's doubt. I mean, he had a need for reassurance and often again, several times in his life, he asked God for signs and then forgot to give him a sign again. And, and you might say, man, this guy, he saw God in the flesh, you know, so to speak, you know, theophany of, I mean, the Lord was with him and he recognizes it soon. He still doesn't get it. And later the fleece. And, and so if you've ever heard about Gideon's fleece, you can read ahead. We're not going to get that far into chapter six, but Gideon's fleece is like his test of God. God, if you're really God, you did it. He never got it. And yet God faithfully perseveres with Gideon. God faithfully puts up with Gideon's questions. He doesn't ridicule him. He doesn't rush him. He, so Gideon says to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. So Gideon went into his, at the end of verse 18, God says to him, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him back to this person, he, the angel of the Lord. He didn't know at the time that who he was. He brought him to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace to this day. It still stands at Pho'ophrah, which belongs, which belongs to the Ab Abirzites. That night, so a little more to go, a few more verses, I promise. We're coming to the end. That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second, so, so now let me, let me reframe for a minute uh, or just kind of summarize. So God appears to Gideon. He's calling him to a task to beat the Midianites. 
Gideon is coming up to speed. It's taking him a minute. He starts with shock, insecurity, questions, doubt. And now God proves to him by this miracle and he sees it and he builds an altar and his heart is stirred and on fire and he wants this. And that night you say, are they going after the Midianites? Well, before they get to the Midianites, there's something else that needs to be done. That night, the Lord said to him, this is in verse uh, 25. Here's what God instructs Gideon as his first job in his new calling. Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. This is God's word completely unabashedly showing that the process of obeying God is not always as courageously done by God's people. But it's done. He obeys. He does it by night because he's fearful and he has a struggle with fear and God works with him on that and, and delivers him from it eventually, but, 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 but he's afraid. But did you see what God asked? We started off by talking about the people of Israel who had turned their back from God. They were worshiping the little gods of the culture. And before they could go and beat the enemy, the Midianites, they had to do some work in their own house. They had to destroy the little altars they had to go back to the worship of the one true God. And the person, Gideon, who had now the unnamed prophet had already predicted that. Now Gideon is the prophet that God has raised to be the judge. And so, and so he needs to do a bold thing. It's risky. He's afraid they're going to kill him. In fact, that was their response. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and acquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. That's how lost and gone they were. They couldn't see the truth staring at them in the face. These are the people who just a generation before saw the Jericho walls crumble, the waters of the Jordan parts. They were living in the promised land. This is the people who, this is their history and they can't see God, the living God for these dead idols. So they want to kill Gideon. No wonder he was afraid. So what did his dad do? But Joash said to all who stood against him, verse 31, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, verse 32, Gideon was called Jerubal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and on. And then the story goes into how they would defeat the fleece and then the defeat of the Midianites, which I'm not going to get into. Why did I go through and read this part of the story? Because nothing, point, teaching point number three, nothing will perplex the people around you faster than a life lived by faith for the glory of God. God will ask you to do things that will sound risky. They will sound dangerous. But if they're done for the glory of God, by the command of God, in his timing, for his glory, 
he'll protect you or he'll lead you to the next step. And the people who initially want to kill him eventually come around alongside him, recognize that he's a prophet chosen by God. And when he calls for the men to come and join him, there's thousands of men who show up for the battle. And of course, God dismisses all except for 300. And the people of Israel would go on and they would defeat the people of Midian. This is an incredible story of a man who was overwhelmed with insecurity and who got picked out of his place of paralysis and confusion and doubt and fear. And God, simply in his goodness and by his grace and out of mercy, not just for Gideon, but for the entire people of Israel, he would use this man and, and through him show us that it is not the strength of our own skills that get us, but our sufficiency, as Paul says, is from God. So maybe that's you today. These are so many, so many applications here. Maybe you're the unnamed prophet. Maybe you're Gideon in the story. Maybe you're, maybe you're the people of Israel who are so attached to the little gods of this world that it does not even cross your mind that God could have something against those things in your life. I don't know the answer. I think it is up to us to open our ears and listen to God's word and beg for him to mercifully show back up in our life and bring us back to a place of revival and repentance and eventually victory. It sort of builds on what we talked about last week. If you want victory, you start by, by, by submitting your need to God, by doing the things that he's asked you to do, even if they sound risky, not because you're so strong and courageous. In fact, Gideon is such an example of a man who wasn't, but because you recognize God's goodness, that he's the one who's doing it through you. I wrote these two sentences down and I'll be done. There is no insecurity deeper than the insecurity of feeling abandoned by God. All right, that's, that's something to think about. That's, that's the deepest insecurity is when we feel abandoned by God. The truth is that we're never abandoned by him. It's just that feeling that we get when we're, we're focused on our circumstances. But here's the second part of it. There is no insecurity that cannot be broken by the security of knowing God's presence and his promises, all right? There is no insecurity that cannot be broken by the security of knowing God's presence and his promises. And the way we know his presence is through his very word and his promises.